The Impact Investing Podcast is brought to you by Kind Wealth. Kind Wealth helps you make the most of your wealth by offering high-quality financial advice. No sales commissions, no hidden fees, no long-term contracts, just honest advice at a price you can afford. Visit kindwealth.ca to learn more. Hey, so before we get into the podcast this week, just a regular reminder, please, please, please go on Apple Podcasts and leave a review if you haven't already. It really means a lot to me uh, and helps us surface for other people uh, to find the podcast. Also, a reminder about some events coming up. Um, There's a complimentary conference called the Legacy Planning Summit. It's being held Wednesday, November 25th, uh, so this coming week. I'll be speaking with my buddy Tim Nash uh, on a panel uh, discussing aligning your legacy with your values. Check it out at LegacyPlanningSummit.com. Also, Future of Good, uh, its summit is happening this Wednesday and Thursday, so November 24th and 20, uh, sorry, 25th and 26th. Uh, check that out, Future of Good Summit. It's going to be a fascinating conference with some really interesting discussions about some big topics of using finance and uh, for good, but also just broader social and environmental issues. And lastly, uh, Innovation Works, which is based out of London, Ontario, uh, is a co-working space for entrepreneurs and social innovators in uh, London, Ontario, has issued a new community bond that's available for investment for as little as $1,000. If you want to learn more about it, they're holding a virtual information session on November 25th. This week, November 25th, is a busy day um, at 12 p.m. You can visit innovationworkslondon.ca forward slash community bond for more information. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Welcome to episode 23 of the Impact Investing Podcast. The idea of discussing ownership and legal structuring of businesses may not sound super exciting at first blush. However, it's a vitally important topic, especially for impact businesses. The issue founders must contend with is how do you protect the purpose and values of your business as it grows and brings on new staff, clients, suppliers, and most importantly, new investors? Investors are can be particularly problematic given the prevalence of the shareholder primacy paradigm, which dictates that company executives have to maximize shareholder value above all else. How do we avoid the pitfalls of capitalism's relentless pressure for profitability growth from distracting us from the poor purpose of our impact businesses? Well, that's what today's guest is here to explore with us today. Natalie Reitman-White is the Ownership and Governance Design Advisor with Alternative Ownership Advisors. Natalie's firm is a stewardship ownership consultancy that works with impact businesses, founders, and entrepreneurs to think about alternative legal structures that help embed a company's purpose into its organizational structure, its governance, and even how it gets financed. During this episode, Natalie and I discuss the origins of Alternative Ownership Advisors and how it got its start when Natalie was running an organic food producer and had difficulty finding answers to her questions in pursuit of a more suitable legal structure. We then dive into the details of how AOA helps business owners. We dive into the details of various legal structures, examples of businesses that have utilized them, and how these models um, help solve the challenges that these businesses and owners were facing. Also, be sure to stay tuned to the very end where we talk about the types of businesses that are best suited for considering alternative ownership models like a perpetual ownership trust, which is one of the models we discussed during the podcast. I hope you'll enjoy it. Okay, so Natalie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I'm um, excited to have this conversation. I stumbled across your organization, Alternative Ownership Advisors, maybe, I don't know, six, seven, eight months ago. It was pre-COVID. Uh, and uh, and I had not, like I'd 
I was wrestling with the the challenges and problems that you guys are kind of working on solving, but hadn't come across you, you know your firm before, and even the idea of something called um, perpetual ownership trusts, which we'll get into in the in the conversation. But that's sort of the context and background for this conversation. I reached out to to you guys to see if we could have a conversation, and uh, so I'm looking forward to having that now. Can you give everybody just introduce yourself and uh, sure. Thanks, what you do? David. Um, so I'm Natalie Reitman White, and um, formed a consultancy called Alternative Ownership Advisors. Uh, probably going on a year and a half ago. Uh, Previous to that, I had worked as an executive uh, in the food sector for many years, um, particularly in um, kind of the sustainability side of the food sector. So working with food companies on transitioning their practices to be um, more environmentally sound and share prosperity more broadly. but doing it through business. So not, you know, I'd worked previously in nonprofits um, and kind of the advocacy side, trying to um, stop bad actors and bad behavior. And I um, decided that maybe the best way to do it wouldn't be to just protest against it, but to actually try to work internally with business people to shift their practices and actually have a more successful company doing the right thing by people on planet. So um, worked a lot um, with kind of the emerging sustainability and organic sector um, to uh, really shift practices and demonstrate that it actually makes a more successful and viable business um, um, over the long term. Hmm. That's really cool. Um, and, um, and so then how long ago, you said it was about a year and a half, two years ago that you started alternative. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that, yeah. I, normally I sort of start, I had this conversation later, but this is a really interesting journey into this because you're coming from the agriculture space, uh, not kind of like from a finance or investment or, uh, background. Um, anyway, so tell me about how did that transition happen? Yeah, well, I was basically solving a problem. So my career has always been kind of this pathway of solving problems to make change in the world. And so why I shifted from kind of an academic nonprofit background towards actually working within business to make change. Um, As part of uh, my journey, I started a trade association for sustainability leadership in the food sector um, and grew that. So I was working with lots of uh, CEOs and uh, management teams across the food sector on uh, measuring their sustainability impact and shifting that impact over time and looking for opportunities for cross-sector collaboration where people might compete in the marketplace, but they're, we all need to solve climate change. We all need to solve packaging waste. We all need to solve uh, labor issues. So there are opportunities to collaborate and all get there faster. And um, uh, so I was involved in that work and that actually led me to start thinking about ownership and finance. Hmm. So I was on a board of directors and um, we were faced with some common challenges that many business owners face. Um, We were looking at uh, legacy and succession planning from our founders to the next generation. How could we create liquidity, but make sure that the mission of the company survived? And one of the things that I saw working um, with peers in the organic industry is um, there was a lot of consolidation. There were a lot of outside investors coming in, recognizing that this was an industry that was kind of hot, that there was a lot of growth. And so they were putting kind of conventional thinking and conventional expectations on these very mission-driven businesses where founders had founded these companies to really think long-term about farming and agriculture, uh, holistically about how they created healthier products and maybe you know fair trade opportunities for producers to make a living. So founders are really founding these companies thinking about purpose and how they could um, deliver results to the purpose by using business as an engine to do that. But then we were having a lot of um, outside kind of private equity venture folks coming in saying, well, this is attractive. This is a growth sector. Um, But then putting kind of conventional expectations about returns and um, financing onto these businesses and actually in the process, eroding the purposes of these companies and the results of these companies. You know, we're, uh, many investors were coming in looking at, um, you know, three, five, seven year uh, turns of these companies where they wanted to buy them, um, grow them quickly, and then sell them. And that was leading to kind of changes in prioritization and control and kind of a pressure for quick growth versus more sustainable growth. And so I was curious about 
how you could create structures that would protect the purpose long-term and still allow for outside investment in a way that wouldn't erode um, the business mission, but would actually be kind of complementary and um, we could create returns, but on balance with returns to ongoing returns to the purpose. So um, I really came at this from a problem solving standpoint, being on a board and seeing many companies who had taken on the wrong kind of um, investors or gone through ownership transitions where they had sold to much bigger companies who didn't get what they're about. And now decisions are being made, you know, uh, far away, kind of by people who weren't close to running the operations of the company. And, um, you know, it eval- it was kind of eroding their value proposition and their impact over time. So I was looking at how could we maintain the value proposition and the impact and have liquidity for founders or growth capital um, in a way that would be sustainable. Yeah, that's really interesting because, I mean, it's all well and good, right, to have a a mission and a purpose that's usually kind of tied up to a founder or a group of founders that are passionate about that. But, you know, I think all businesses face the, the issue of, you know, culture dilution and, you know, the losing kind of your way as time goes on and you grow and you take on outside investors, but it is particularly pronounced with those that are thinking about their impact and willing to make maybe unconventional decisions about their business um, how they run it, what type of, you know, kind of returns they need to generate from it. Um, uh, that's kind of more pronounced those problems, right? Because as you, as you're pointing out, you're taking on outside investors who may not share that. And so, um, so that's what you sort of works, um, thinking about and what, how, when did that transition take place from where you were working yeah. for the ag company to starting this consultancy? Sure. Yeah. And I just want to play off a point that you just made. The impact sector is full of innovators who aren't conventional thinkers. That's why it's the impact sector. They're looking at the status quo and they're saying, hey, I want to, I want to improve the status quo. I want to move beyond the status quo. I want to, um, uh, you know, uh, better my community in some way, be it creating more shared prosperity or um, solving a problem uh, that that society has. And so they're innovators. And so what you want is models that actually support their continued uh, out-of-the-box thinking and um, uh, and kind of dri- what drives them is this kind of gut purpose that they that they feel a passion to um, solve, to further. And so you don't want to gut that through using conventional tools and structures that may actually pull them off track. Um, So um, I think it's an important thing to think about. You know, if we keep using the old tools, we'll get the old results. And if we're trying to grow new types of businesses, it's not just the what, but the how we're investing and owning them also needs to change. Um, So in terms of... um, my personal journey, um, so I was on the board of um, one of the largest distributors of organic fruits and vegetables uh, in the U.S., um, been around for 40 years, uh, about 300 employees, and um, I got to problem solving. So this this question of we had a bunch of being founded 40 years ago, there were a bunch of founders who were on the cusp of retirement. We were looking at a solution to liquidate their stock because that was their nest egg that they needed to pull out for their retirement. Um, And, um, you know, what were the options? So uh, typical options is sale to an outside party. We were in that because we knew that the people who are close, who are working in the company were close to the mission. They interact with their farmers every day. They interact with their customers. Um, They're passionate about our role to transform food and agriculture through healthier products and through doing business in a transparent relationship-based way versus a commodity-based way. And so we didn't want to take control away from them by selling the company to the outside. Um, We wanted to make sure the steering wheel of the company stayed inside the company. Our board had always historically been a combination of farmers, employees, and then um, community members who really support our mission. So we wanted to keep the, the governance within the company. And um, the other thing that we were looking at is when you try to keep your company independent by doing self-financing, we had 
signed up for an employee stock ownership plan as our original succession plan. So let's buy shares of the company back using our own profitability to give those shares to future employees. And that is a um, laudable goal. Uh, a lot of uh, companies consider this. One of the challenges is, is a lot of employees um, don't have capital to invest themselves, um, maybe your management team. But if you really want to share ownership more broadly, you know, our company being a distribution company, the majority of workers are warehousers, truck drivers, um, sales force. A lot of those folks don't necessarily have extra capital to invest in a company. So you're using a portion of your profits to buy back stock and to allocate the stock to those employees. And that can be a drain on cash flow over time because essentially you're buying your company from yourself again and again and again. Every time an employee leaves, you're using your own cash flows to buy out someone and then give it to the next person and the next person. And what we also found was not everyone is into owning their company. Some people are very motivated by it. Um, the, someday they'll, their stock will be worth something when they retire at 65. But we find a lot of young people might have different needs. They might um, really prefer profit sharing to um, stock um, that's more pay-as-you-go kind of real-time rewards versus um, someday this will be worth something uh, if you can transition the ownership. So, uh, you know, I was looking at how could we um, recapitalize the business, basically buy out the existing owners um, and not sell control externally and make sure that we weren't cash strapping the business on kind of the stock buyback treadmill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I started looking actually at the cooperative world. So um, there are examples um, in, of agricultural cooperatives. Um, I knew some of the executives over at Organic Valley, which is one of the largest, um, most successful agricultural cooperatives um, in the States. Uh, I think over a billion dollar company, um, many, many farmers. and um, while they are owned by the farmers, they've actually created a investment um, tool for uh, outside investors to participate um, without giving up control. So it is a, a preferred stock that they've offered where um, the stockholders can't sell the company. Um, the company belongs to the farmers and the farmers keep the steering wheel of the company and share in the rewards as cooperative members. But the preferred stock um, is an investment where you're buying into a portion of the uh, profitability and income flows of the company over time. So um, we looked at how we could do that for organically grown. How could we, we'd had people knock on our door for years saying that they were interested in buying the company or investing in the company. And for 40 years, we'd never taken outside investment Mm. because we were concerned about selling control. But in this way, we could potentially bring on investors in preferred stock and share a portion of the profitability over time without um, the underlying common stock or ownership interest of the company being for sale. Um, The other thing that we were looking at is, so who should hold the common stock? Who should hold the ownership interest? It has to be held traditionally by a person. (laughs) And typically, ownership interest is passed two ways. One, you inherit it. So kids can inherit a company from their family members. Or the second is ownership interest is bought and sold. So you sell your common stock to the next owner and they buy it, be it an employee stock ownership plan or an external buyer. And what we decided to do was uh, we worked with a team of very creative lawyers that you can actually set up a trust um, that is not a charitable trust. So it, it is a, um, a, a private trust um, whose legal beneficiaries are a purpose, not a person. Hmm. Um, and uh, so we set up one of these purpose trusts for the purpose of um, taking the ownership stock from our existing owners, buying it back over time, and then settling it into a trust from which it will not be moved. So then we're done with the stock buyback treadmill. We have an owner, it's a trust that will never die, never wants liquidity, mm-hmm. and um, is the assets in the trust, which is 
the company value, the company equity, needs to be used for the purpose. And the purpose of our trust is to promote sustainable food and agriculture. So the company is still a for-profit company. It's a, um, a C corporation. Uh, we have preferred stock investors, but it is 100% owned um, long-term by a trust that directs the board of directors to deliver results to the purpose, um, which includes keeping the company financially viable and then delivering results to things like a positive impact on climate change, uh, less toxic and persistent chemicals in the food that we eat, um, healthier returns to farmers. Um, and because it doesn't need liquidity, you're done with kind of that treadmill of needing to use your profitability to constantly buy back stock. And instead you can use your profitability to reinvest in the business, um, share with stakeholders like employees through profit sharing or farmers through profit sharing and investors. Um, but on balance and none of them has the rights to sell the underlying uh, entity. It's held in trust for the purpose. So that's, and these are, that's a perpetual ownership trust is what you've just described there. Correct. Yeah. And they're, um, it's kind of an emerging area that is uh, in England um, and in the UK, it's really uh, taken off. Um, it's starting to take off in the States a bit. Um, Germany, there's kind of different countries have different variations on this trust structure. And, and is this like, were you aware of that at the time that you were working through this for your, for your own organization or was this just like it, you it took, created. It took a lot of turning over rocks, uh, and which is part of why we started Alternative Ownership Advisors to make it easier for folks who are looking for alternatives. So I went through a three-year process with um, attending conferences um, of the National Center for Employee Ownership and um, kind of impact investment conferences looking for a structure that would keep our company independent and mission driven for the long term as um, founders transitioned and as employees come and go, how do you keep the company focused on the purpose and how do you capitalize it? So had a great, great team of lawyers that I was in touch with and I'd bounce ideas off of them. So at first we thought, well, what about some sort of multi-stakeholder cooperative that would include farmers and employees and investors, what about, you know, we, we were kind of playing with ideas and over time we discovered that these purpose trusts were um, increasingly being used to hold company ownership. Um, and we first learned about them um, being used in the UK. Um, there's some historic well-functioning companies that have been owned this way for hundreds of years. Probably the most prominent example is John Lewis Partnerships, which is a chain of uh, department stores and grocery stores. And we learned about this through an article um, by a, a lawyer named Christopher Michael, who wrote about um, how that structure exists um, to where the founders put the company in trust and the company is permanently held in a purpose trust uh, to um, not never sell the company and to share the profits over time with the employees. So does this, it, it, does that structure then um, curtail or like negate your ability to issue ownership to, to employees and they simply receive like a profit share from the trust or can the trust basically issue, you know, sell shares and buy shares back from employees? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of flexibility in these structures. Um, what the, the way we did it in um, Organically Grown's case was uh, we have the, the preferred stock if folks are interested in investing and oh, right. um, they get a portion of the profit. So each year they get, uh, as the company does well, they get a portion of the profits and they could take that profit sharing and turn around and invest in preferred stock if they were interested in investing, or they can take it and, you know, pay for their kid's college or put a down payment on a house. So it offers that flexibility with most employee stock ownership plans. They're highly regulated um, to, because they're considered retirement plans. And as a result, you 
can't have different options for employees. It's either, you know, you're offering this to everyone or nobody, but this kind of model actually offers the flexibility to um, have a variety of compensation um, mechanisms. Interesting. Okay. So the, the, the trust owns, as you say, the, the common shares, the common shares own the purpose of the organization, not the, are not entitled to the profits of the business, right? And the preferred shares essentially give you ownership over the economic produce that comes from this yeah. this, uh, this organization. And that is what in turn can kind of be bought and sold. And so that even if somebody owned 100% of the preferred shares, you know, that doesn't, like, I'm, I'm curious at what point would somebody own the, own the business and be able to make business decisions. Do you have to, you own, you would own the majority of the preferred shares. You still can't veer from the purpose of the organization. Is that grind in that? Yeah, I can talk about the, the kind of the governance side. So sure. the way you described it is exactly correct. And it's this um, kind of emerging model of what we call stewardship ownership. So this notion that ownership isn't passed through inheritance and it isn't bought and sold. Ownership is held by folks who can best steward the mission long-term. And the basic mechanics are you separate out the um, control or voting rights from the economic rights. And you put control and voting rights in the hands of people who are merit-based stewards. And companies can set that up in a variety of ways, um, which I'll talk about. And then the economic rights, which are um, a portion of the value that's being created by the business after it reinvests in itself and keeps it keeps itself healthy can be divided up against whatever stakeholders you choose. So it could be employees in a simple method. It could be employees plus investors. It could be employees, investors, plus community organizations. Um, So you're separating out who holds the control rights and the governance to keep it on track with the purpose, and then who shares in a portion of some economic rights. in organically grown's model, the, the governance was set up um, to be multi-stakeholder. So we have a trust committee that um, is responsible for appointing the board of directors. And um, they ensure that the board of directors is over time delivering results to the purpose. So just like an owner, they get quarterly reports from the board. They make sure that things are looking financially well and over time they look that the company is delivering results to the purpose so we have metrics in place around carbon footprint or around um, um, programs that benefit uh, employees and farmers and so they're looking to those metrics over time to see whether they're actually delivering results so just like an owner they hold the board accountable Um, that stewardship committee uh, in organically grown's case is um, elected by the stakeholders of the business. So it's a pretty um, democratic model in that employees, customers, suppliers, investors, and community allies, which are nonprofits that we're um, members of or participants in, each have one vote. So um, they elect our trust protectors to um, be the representative of the purpose owner and um, if they are not holding the company accountable to the purpose they could unelect those folks and elect new people to sit on that board Um, we made it very democratic from the purpose of engagement we feel like all of five of those stakeholder groups are bringing value to the company so it's actually very strategic employees bring their labor and creativity every day we want them to feel connected to the mission and that they have a little bit of that steering wheel. Um, uh, Investors are part of the equation too. They are providing capital that's helping the company grow and run. Um, And so we're providing them with a little bit of the steering wheel, but it's not according to how much they invest. So you could invest, you know, half a million dollars or $10,000. You get to participate as one stakeholder in that process. So that way you've continued to decouple kind of control with investment. And then um, customers, uh, they're part of creating value in the system. They dedicate their commitment to buying our products and services. And so giving them a a part of um, 
nominating who will serve on that ownership trust. Um, suppliers as well. Farmers are a huge part of our success. If they feel like we're a company that's taking care of them, that's acting with transparency and integrity in our buying relationships. So we want them at the table too. If we're going off track, because that's a key part of our mission, they're a part of stewarding it. Um, and then same thing with the community uh, allies and nonprofits. So we're basically creating a all these people are part of bringing value and all of these people are part of keeping us on track to the purpose. They're all stewards in the company, um, ensuring the company stays on track to its purpose. Um, and then they can share in the economic rewards through profit sharing. So questions for you, because this is all fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I love it. Uh, so like logistically, how, how do you, like um, let's take clients as an example. So mm-hmm. clients collectively represent one vote and each uh, is kind of an equal fraction of that voter or let's like each of those stakeholders have an equal weight in the, in the voting process for the. Yeah. Everyone has an equal weight um, and it's one entity, one vote. Um, we try to keep it really simple at the gate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then you've but, got five votes in total from each of those stakeholder groups. Correct. And how do you yeah. how do you determine who the who the vote is for the clients? It's a like an email that goes out and as a poll and mm-hmm. whoever gets the most votes type of thing. Yeah. So we've actually replaced our um, we have an annual meeting, but instead our, our annual meetings used to be shareholders, right? Shareholders show up and they all vote for our board proportional to how many shares they own. Um, we replaced our annual shareholder meeting with an annual stakeholder gathering, which is actually quite powerful because the board shows up, the management team, and they report to the trust on their results to the purpose, and any stakeholder can attend. So if you're a farmer, if you're a customer, if you're an employee, community ally, or investor, you can attend and hear the results to the purpose. And um, through that process, you um, at those annual meetings, we have our votes for a certain proportion, certain number of trust protectors who are turning over. So those trustees that sit at the trust level, um, so they can ask them, how are you ensuring the company is delivering results to the purpose? Um, we also will ask them for input. Like at our last trust gathering, um, we we asked them for input and in, um, where we might invest some dollars to further our purpose. So um, we were looking at making some. Um, strategic investments with um, some of our our profits, our upside profits. And we asked about ways that we could make some investments to further um, uh, sustainable agriculture in our community. And so we got input. Um, so I actually find that this is the kind of the, the heart of what could make stakeholder capitalism powerful is you still got a for-profit enterprise that is generating products and services that people will pay for, but it really is in service of this mission and people feel tied into it and it creates more customer loyalty, more employee loyalty, because, you know, one of our employees said, um, I love this because it's very clear to me, you know, a lot of companies, they say, oh, we work for the purpose, but you're really working for, for, you know, a handful of owners. So in our case, we're actually really working for the purpose. Like we own it, we steward the purpose and we share in the results over time. And it really is all of ours to steward and, and to, to share. And so he was very motivated by it because he says a lot of companies, they say that, but at the end of the day, it's really the private property of a handful of people and they can sell it at any time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, like a, I think there's a few things going on there that really make it desirable. I mean, a, that do you, do you go to the, the the um, the lengths of uh, being very clear and defining what the purpose actually is, um, defining and how you measure that, <laughs> um, you know your your progress towards that, and then having essentially you know and and um, uh, a check and balance against that that's made up of the entire you know stakeholder set to hold you accountable to that to progress towards that, which, you know, I think the vast majority of, you know, um, 
for-profit companies, even, you know, those from, you know, the, the, the business, uh, you know, round table talking about, you know, purpose and all that, like aren't doing to that anywhere near to that degree. And so, um, yeah, I love that a lot. Um, I love that as well. Like I, I was thinking about, okay, so in practical terms, what would stop a private equity firm from like walking in and, and potentially just buying the whole thing, kit and caboodle, if they just had enough, you know, and where they were sufficiently motivated. Um, and sure, they, you know, conceivably, I guess, maybe I'm wrong about this, they could buy all of the the economic interest, but they can't buy the purpose. So they'd be hamstrung by that. And then the board is elected by this group of, you know, they'd only have one vote of those five. And so how would you, it's such a diverse and diffuse um accountability like the 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 that board is so diffuse i don't know how you would buy all of those <laughs> stakeholders yeah. in the process to get yeah. the type of you know um board that you want in place you, i just don't even it doesn't sound like it's possible there's a there's a lot of protection against yeah. that and um and again the stock is structured so that you're sharing in a portion of the income flows, but you don't have the ability to sell the underlying value of the company. So uh, it's it, it's not, your return isn't to, you know, someday you'll cash in by selling the company away. It's your return is while your money's in, you're getting a portion of the returns. Right. Um, so it's, uh, it protects against that kind of buy in, drive up the value and flip the company. And that's how I'm going to, to get my return. Um, so it's a much more long-term kind of uh, thinking and, and value proposition. I want to keep my money in and, and earn a, a portion of the income flows over time. Um, and I'll, I'll say, you know, we set up this purpose trust structure, but part of the reason why we started alternative ownership advisors. So in my three-year journey um, looking for alternative structures, I've met some really great people working on solving these problems. How do we think about ownership investment in a different way? You know, there are a lot of folks who started working in the impact sector. So they were passionate about shifting money towards companies that were producing products and services that were making a difference. And so they were looking at, you know, how to, how to shift wealth that direction. And some of them started unpacking this question as around, it's not just the what we're investing in we need to think about differently, but it's also the how we're investing and um, how do we think about investing differently and ensuring that these companies sustain their impacts long-term. Um, I know some impact investors um, have gotten concerned that they'll invest in a company for a while in this you know, great mission and, and so forth. And then again, the company will change hands and the steering wheel will change and all that value that they built up um, in doing something different is now eroded. So they're also interested in like, how do we keep these companies sustaining and growing their impact over time, not just for a period of time. So met a lot of great people in that field who are thinking through these questions. And um, there's a, a nonprofit foundation out of Europe called the Purpose Foundation that has been spreading these stewardship ownership models and they go beyond purpose trust. So at Alternative Ownership Advisors, we've been helping companies. Um, there are some additional models, like for example, when we call the golden share model, which is rather than setting up a trust, you simply take an existing corporate form like an LLC or a C Corp and you um, divide up the economic and governance rights. So you make sure that the governance rights are held by some sort of merit-based stewards, be that be founders or a council or kind of an employee elected group. And then you decide who gets economic rights. And it might be founders, investors, uh, employees over time, but they're separate. Um, and you introduce a golden share, which is a veto share that would veto against any sale of the company to an outside um, entity that wouldn't keep the company on the purpose. So it essentially is very similar to the trust, but simple. There's no trust involved as an owner. You've just separated out different classes of shares with um, different rights um, that protect the, the steering wheel of the company while a variety of folks might share in some of the economics. 
Yeah, that uh, that's really interesting. I was going to you predicted my my question is going to ask you about other alternative kind of models than the perpetual ownership trusts. So the golden share, um, it does strike me that it probably does. We're kind of being kind of maybe arguing coming some of the and I don't think it's a drawback necessarily, but it's a it's an implication or maybe a reality that I imagine it would if you had a perpetual ownership trust, for instance, and you've enshrined the purpose, it is going to limit your it's going to turn off some investors, right? There's going to be private equity shops. There's going to be investors who go, oh, wait, well, wait a minute. I'm hamstrung by this purpose. I can't invest in, I'm not going to invest in this. I'll find something else where I don't have this and I can take over the business and do whatever I want with it, which is the point of this, of this model. But it does probably mean that, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that you might be, you know, you're looking for, you know, it really forces you to find those really aligned investors, which is, you know, the, the point of it. But it just, yeah. it is a reality that you, you I, for, for now, I guess. Absolutely. I think um, it, it definitely is a clear signal for folks that are looking um, to do a quick flip of a company or, uh, you know, to take control from the outside and, um, start uh, kind of telling the operating company what to do. And, and that this is not for them. This is about folks who actually believe that what they're investing in is something that they uh, want to sustain and that they trust the, the leadership of the company to sustain, to be the best stewards of that mission over time. And so um, it's, it's definitely a different value proposition. Um, I also think that there's a shift going on right now. So when I first brought this proposal to the rest of the board of recapitalizing the business into a trust, uh, I have to say I got some serious pushback from a few board members. They just said, that's not the way it works. Like, you know, this is the basic premise of how ownership works. You buy stock, you buy control. This is the way it works. And, and that chance that you're going to be able to recapitalize the business in this way. But um, so I did, before we pulled the trigger on this, I did a bunch of conversations to see if we would get the amount of investment we needed. And we, we needed over $11 million investment to, to do this transition. And, you know, I was surprised that in the impact space, yes, you have to turn over a lot of rocks, but there are more and more people looking for opportunities like this. There are more people who are trying to divest um, all or part of their portfolio from the stock market where they're absentee owners for com from companies that are so far away, they have no idea what they're doing and, and how they're making their returns. Um, they're interested in investing in companies that they know the mission is protected and that the company is deeply delivering results to the mission and that's not going to change over time. And they don't need control. They're looking for a balanced you know, return uh, um, that is de-risked by the fact that the business has other stakeholders benefiting from the business. I mean, in a lot of ways, um, we were surprised by how many people through private wealth advisors, um, uh, family offices, um, even uh, people with um, private foundations that are doing giving, but they're looking for some investment for a period of time, were interested in investing um, in uh, in our model. Um, and then there's also kind of a growing group of people who are doing kind of funds, but funds with this very um, specific criteria that the companies are um, privately held uh, long-term value creators. Hmm. Yeah, I imagine like to the extent that, and I think it, it is true, I mean, I think for sure that there's a growing you know, appetite for this and an understanding of it and and then a, and a belief and in, in, in evidence that companies that have really great relationships with all stakeholders, their employees, their suppliers, their investors, um, their communities, like that, that in and of itself has economic value, right? Like that is really hard to, like I think about it in terms of, you know, kind of using uh, you know, investment language, like mm -hmm. what's the economic moat of this mm -hmm. business? Mm -hmm. And so like, this is a really great signaling for that, like companies that have a really big moat. Um, and yep. so like, I, so I wonder to what extent it kind of, 
yeah, I'm giving up control of the purpose, but I know that that's buying me. Like if I'm looking at it shrewdly from like just the, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. an investor, an investor standpoint, like, I don't know that pure investors might not find that an attractive feature net net. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it certainly does. Um, I mean, one of the things that we've helped some clients with at Alternative Ownership Advisors is actually um, demonstrating that the returns will go to multiple stakeholders and showing how that flows through the system and showing where the investors come in. But so, for example, we were working with one um, founder who was saying, well, you know, this business could generate up to about a 15% return. But the way I want to structure it is I want to have investors have a variable return of up to 8%. And then I want to have the rest go to my employees and um, my customers and rebates and so forth. And so we could actually show, we created a cash flow waterfall and a stock agreement that could show Investors will get this portion of the pie, but others will get this portion of the pie. And that shared prosperity model, um, by actually transparently demonstrating how it would be divided up, um, created a sense of motivation for everyone. Because it was very clear. It's not like, oh, I, I'm a worker in this company, and I'm, but I don't really know how much the owners are making or what, you know, uh, how much how the company is doing instead it's that kind of um open book to not individual salaries and individual investors but at least seeing how the pie was divided up Mm -hmm. it actually created shared motivation and to the investors that we were selling the product to they saw it as de-risking because there's going to be less of a chance of key employees leaving or you know boycotts or whatever because it's very clear that it's a very fair system and the better the company does the better everyone does so right. you know uh so i'm working for this purpose and in doing so i'm going to benefit and you're going to benefit and we're all bringing value and this notion of kind of uh investors are are Investors often actually want to be more participatory in community with the companies that they're working with. It's not just the investor versus the company or workers versus the investors, that this is a way to make sure everybody's working to a shared purpose. And then you have the transparency of demonstrating where the returns go um, when we do well towards that purpose and um, grow the company. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I mean, I think it's a really great way to cement, you know, there's all obviously all the talk about moving from, you know, shareholder primacy to stakeholder, you know, primacy. And this just seems like a way to put your money where your mouth is and codify that and protect it. And so to the extent that these gain more awareness and and, and uptake, it's a really great cipher like siphoning off okay they're not serious about it if they're you know and and like over you know and not that every business is going to just you know transition to this model overnight but you know the more the time that goes on you know and the more business you know the businesses that do or versus don't just signals a lot about their commitment yeah i agree with you i think it's kind of the evolution of the corporate social responsibility movement first it was okay, we need to change our products and services to be more responsible. And then the second wave was, oh, we actually need to change our operations as well to think about, um, you know, how we're, how, not just the products we offer, but how we're doing business. Um, and I think this is the next layer, which is uh, we need to think about who's making the decisions and where does the money go? And how do we structure that in a way that's also sustainable and aligned with impact? So from products to operations to ownership and finance, aligning all levels with um, shared prosperity and um, the purpose of the company. Yeah, I've got um, Jed Emerson coming on the podcast in a couple uh, weeks, I think now. And uh, Jed, I don't know if you know Jed, but he talks about in his book, uh, Purpose of Capital, this idea of like individualism really took you know, root in uh, modern Western uh, societies and viewing ourselves as separate from nature and from one another. And this idea that, you know, we're not actually separate. Everything that we do deeply impacts uh, 
you know, others and the environment and, you know, we're part of a very intricate, interconnected system. Um, and so, you know, a lot of our legal structures are set up to reinforce this individualism, right? Like you have, as you mentioned, shareholders who have no understanding of a business, no awareness of it. And it's just purely, you know, you have people day trading shares and you don't have no idea what that is to them. It's a ticker symbol. They may not even be able to tell you the name of the company and that, that we're not going to solve, you know, we're, we're, these, these problems, we're not going to get true impact unless we have, I think the legal structures to, to, prevent that type of disconnection from happening and that make it very clear that these things are all interrelated, interconnected and have a say in the, in the process. So I love, yeah, anyway, I love this conversation. I like these um, models, but I think they're really important to achieving that end, that effect, which is we are, it's all interrelated. Absolutely. Can you just maybe quickly, um, what types of, are there certain types of companies or businesses that this is good for? And then others where it may be more challenging, like, is it better suited to certain types of businesses or do you think this just can be applied across the board to any? Yeah. Well, I'd like to see all sectors have purpose run business. Um, there are some particular sectors that I think would really benefit from purpose run business. Um, for example, I think the media and communications and publishing sector, um, uh, uh, benefiting from being purpose-driven versus um, shareholder-driven because really they're providing a service, which is the foundation of democracy, which is access to information and knowledge. So um, having uh, publishing houses that are um, dedicated to that purpose of furthering uh, good information and knowledge, particularly media, um, uh, I, I would like to kind of see that. And that sector has actually seen um, an uptick in interest in these alternative ownership structures. So um, uh, with the corporate consolidation in, um, in media, um, there are some that are looking at buybacks of media to put it more in the hands of stewardship and community ownership. So it maintains that service to community versus um, uh, service to, to investors and and so forth. So, um, and, you know, there's still for-profit enterprises, but they're again, rooted in, in purpose. Um, I think food, food and agriculture for sure. Sure. I think about food as, uh, uh, a service, which is providing nourishment to our bodies. And, um, it has a tremendous impact on the environment and landscape. So I'd like to see more businesses in the food sector transition, um, we're also um, getting contacted by clients in the um, kind of uh, technology space. So um, there are a lot of entrepreneurs innovating in technology, like sharing platforms for, you know, uh, ride sharing to, uh, you know, uh, Airbnb to internet search platforms. And a lot of them have started their companies because they believe in principles around um, uh, creating free access or um, access to ordinary people to different things. Um, and so they're looking for, um, they're often scaling quickly and like attractive to uh, investors. And they're looking for ways to protect that core mission of like that passion around why they founded the business. So for example, um, uh, Mozilla Firefox is a is a uh, you know a search engine, but they um, are actually owned uh, by a foundation um, right. with the purpose of protecting the internet, and and they do all sorts of um, investing and so forth in kind of things to keep um, access to public information and um, so forth. Um, so I'd say kind of uh, technology and um, innovation platforms and technology. And there's also a lot of kind of horror stories of people who started great companies. Like one of the articles that I was impressed by was um, a guy who started the, um, a platform that got sold to um, LinkedIn, WhatsApp. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and he actually like 
sold, they sold the company. And then he wrote this whole manifesto about how his original purposes for why he started the company for ordinary people to communicate relatively cheaply on a secure platform, why that was being eroded by the parent company um, when they took over in terms of starting to mine for users' information and exploit users' information for marketing. Um, so there's kind of this rebellion going on, I think, in the tech world against traditional uh, ownership and finance, looking for more stewardship-based ownership and finance, media, um, food and agriculture, um, healthcare is another another big sector. Um, so I'd say industries that are focused on um, service are. Uh, kind of key, but I think any company could be on this way. Uh, some of the examples in Europe are of stewardship ownership are classic kind of industrial companies like Bosch is owned this way in Germany through a, a purpose mm -hmm. trust. And um, that was established by the, the grandparents who didn't want to um, give the company to their children um, because they didn't necessarily think that their children would be the best um, stewards of the company in terms of running it and not sell the company over time. So they put it in a trust. Um, their kids are still entitled to a portion of the economic shares. So they still own a certain, but the company is settled into a trust that can never be sold. They dedicate most of their, their mission is to promote research and education. So the majority of their profits go back into reinvesting in research and education within the company, sharing with employees to charity and then a portion to the employee or to the um, the family, um, but the ownership is never to be sold, held in trust. So there there are examples of you know classic kind of industrial um, and manufacturing companies as well in these models. Yeah, wow, very cool. I didn't know I didn't know that about Bosch in particular. <laughs> um, and and would you say is it something that like startups can do, or is it something that oh, like you probably need some sort of significant revenue and been in business for a bit before you convert to a, a, a structure like that? Yeah, we're uh, we're kind of feeling it, feeling out the landscape. For the most part, we've been approached by founders who already have a successful company and are looking for a succession plan that, um, you know, maybe they've looked at selling the company to managers or employees or an outside party and none of this is feeling quite right to them, to the protection of the purpose long-term and ensuring the company is going to stay on track with the values and culture that they've established. So they're looking to a structure like this to lock that in. Um, but we've also definitely been approached by kind of younger entrepreneurs who are starting things and they're trying to figure out how to structure it in this purpose-driven way from the get-go um, and actually seeing it as part of the value proposition uh, for attracting uh, investors. Um, so we see both. And it is something that can be done at either, at either end, like either as a succession or at the start when you're getting. Yeah, I think, I think some of the challenges for startups are their business models are still yet to be proven. So sometimes it is hard to convince investors um, to uh, just trust the company to kind of run itself to the purpose because right. there's more risk being taken on that it's an unproven um, kind of concept. And so um, how do you, so, so just thinking that through and thinking through um the structure of the terms of the investment too often time startups too, you're not sure um, when they're going to generate the returns to pay back investors and in established company, you can kind of model out, okay, you'll likely get this return on investment over time. And a newer company uh, trying to figure out what the sweet spot is of a reasonable return that would be healthy for the company. Um, you know, is it paying the investor back? Uh, up to 3x within so many years with a redeemable share. What does that look like? Um, and that's why startups are often funded by folks who, you know, are in and then going to to um, sell the company in X amount of time. Right. Um, no, that, that, so. yeah, that makes sense. It'll be interesting to see what solutions uh, emerge for startups that kind of help get around maybe some of those, those challenges, because it, it's, it does seem if, if this is the way that kind of 
we think things should be moving, it does seem like, oh, it seems like a shame that you'd have to get started in a traditional model, build up the type of profitability that it only then become possible later. And I know I'm, I'm yeah. oversimplifying, but if that was like just the route that most businesses had to go, that is a, it'd be nice to eliminate that problem and just have them go right that way from, from scratch. But I see I the agree. challenge you're, you're raising. It's interesting. Yeah, I agree. But I think there's ways to get creative. I'm, I'm a, I'm a problem solver. Yeah. You know, this is uh, from theory into practice, you know, I have theory about why we need stakeholder capitalism and some of the challenges of kind of the Milton Friedman doctrine doctrine, but it's like, how do you operationalize it in a business and how do you actually do something different to get different results? And so um, I think there's where there's a will, there's a way with getting creative with structures. Well, you've clearly proven that uh, going from running your own ag firm to, you know, setting up a whole consulting firm because you've, you solved the challenge for yourself and then like, Oh, we've built up a lot of (laughs) experience and knowledge. Why don't we just offer this to others who uh, that's just really cool. I love that. I love that. That's uh, that was kind of the, the journey. Um, so I'll, I'll, in the interest of time, I'll, I'll maybe start to wrap it up here. But I, I wanted to say, um, you know, this is called the Impact Investing Podcast. Impact is such a, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. It's such a big term. It can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. How do, for you, like just personally, how do you define impact in your life? And, and what, are you trying to, what are you trying to achieve? What would you feel good about at the end of the day? Uh, I think of two things. I think of um, doing good, uh, you know, leaving things better than when you started. Mm -hmm. And then the other is, I think, so so positive contribution. And the other I think of uh, is urgency. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like we have a responsibility to do better, you know, to, to leave our communities better than when we entered them and to leave the planet in a healthier place. Um, so that's something that drives me. And then I also feel an urgency that this isn't just a nice to have, but there's an imperative around a lot of this. There are people who are hurting uh, right now. They're, they're, we have life-supporting resources that are being eroded, like clean air and clean water and soils. So it's not just a nice to have. Um, I think there's an imperative for all of us to shift our dollars and our energy towards having healthier relationships with the planet and uh, with each other. Um, Because some of those opportunities will be lost. You know, we have so long to take care of climate change. We have so long to take care of erosion of our topsoils before you can't reverse those things. And so uh, while I believe in doing good, I also want to make sure we have a sense of urgency and imperative around that as well, that it's um, something we not only should do because it feels good, but we have to do as a as a society. So I love the... I think those two fit really nicely together. Not that it matters what, what I think, but um, the they're very personal. They're for you, but the, I love the, the there's something special about like the, that definition of just like, let's leave the world a better place than we found it is you could say, well, that's a pretty low bar and that could mean a lot of things, but it's nice because it's like, if, if, if everybody started there and that was sort of their approach, like it, it may, it's very empowering because anybody can do, you know, it leaves it open for, you know, it can be big or small impacts, but if your bar is to leave things better than you found it, it's, it's less daunting um, because it just makes it feel more achievable. And then the urgency is nice because it's again, like, okay, so let's not wait. It's, it's achievable. You can do it. You don't have to change the world single-handedly make something better than you know, make the net net leave this world better than you found it and do it right away. And those like, just there's, it gets over that hurdle of, I think, inertia that most people, I think most people want to do good. I think most people would, would prefer to do good than not. It's just, I think most people don't spend the time and energy to think about it or they feel they don't know how to do it. They're overwhelmed by it. They're busy, whatever those things are. So I love, anyway, I love those two in combination. Um, last question for you. If people want to find, I'm going to link to um, alternative ownership advisors in the show notes. Um, there's some great resources for anybody listening. Uh, you've got some great definitions on the website and the blog on stewardship ownership, perpetual owner trust, employee ownership trust. So for anybody listening, uh, the website's a really great resource. Um, 
Do you work with clients all over the world? Are you mainly focused on clients in the U.S.? Yeah. Uh, so I've actually got a fellowship in New Zealand. Um, I'm on regular touch with folks in Europe. Um, and I'm, I'm based in Canada. My colleagues are based in the U.S. So um, open to working with uh, folks all around the world. Obviously, jurisdictions change. So while these design principles we want to manifest, we have to work with lawyers locally um, to figure out what the corporate forms are and trust forms are that we can work with um, in different countries. Um, and but we're building up a great network of folks who are creative lawyers and thinkers um, and policymakers um, internationally who can help us kind of find the right legal forms to work with these stewardship principles. Um, so um, primarily our work has been in the U.S. to date, but um, certainly uh, open because this is, again, something that is, is you know, good for good for all. Yeah, that's awesome. So if folks want to find you, it's the link in the show notes, but it's alternativeownershipadvisors.com. Natalie, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. I love what you're doing. And um, I hope uh, this has been really insightful for people listening. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, David, for having me. And um, thanks for putting these podcasts together. It's uh, important to have dialogue around these topics. and. Um, I enjoyed it. It's my pleasure. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, you can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that.